You're listening to ReachMD XM157, and this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health. Amaurosis fugax, sudden transient monocular visual loss in a previously healthy young adult. It's a no-brainer. It's multiple sclerosis, right? That's what the computer-generated algorithm told me. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jane Ness. Dr. Ness is an associate professor of pediatrics with joint appointments in neurology and neurobiology at the Children's Hospital of Alabama in Birmingham. Dr. Ness is the director of the Center for Pediatric Onset Demyelinating Disease and an associate scientist at the Civitan Research Center and the Center for Gliobiology and Medicine. Today we are discussing things that mimic demyelinating disorders in childhood. Good day, Dr. Ness, and thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks for inviting me to talk today. I was trained to think of horses when I hear hoofbeats, but not to forget about the zebras. So what needs to be considered in the differential diagnosis of a child presenting with an acute onset of central nervous symptoms? Common things in kids, of course, it depends on the presentation. So, for example, if a child's not moving one side of their body, you've got to think about stroke. Sometimes a child's had a prolonged seizure, and the child may not be, again, may be sleepy for a while, not moving one side of the body very well, as near as you can tell in an obtunded child, perhaps, who's intubated. And so, you, could, you know, you might start thinking about, you know, is this a tautoparesis? Is it, you know, some sort of postictal phenomenon? Are they obtunded just because they got a lot of drugs to stop their seizure? A more common thing, too, if there's altered mental status, is, is this encephalitis? Or is there some other infection of the central nervous system? And so the MRI can be very critical in, in sorting this out as well as a spinal tap. Although a lot of times there's overlap because, for example, in encephalitis, you'll have an elevated white count in the CSF, but that can also happen in ADEM, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is a form of diffuse widespread demyelination within the brain, usually with focal symptoms and, all, you know, we, we suggest always with an alteration of mental status. So it can be it can be difficult to encephalitis will usually have a normal MRI, ADEM will have these abnormalities. There's also a number of inflammatory CNS conditions that you know have have really we've really struggled with you know was it MS was it something else and we've seen kids with lupus or mixed connective tissue disorders that have had some focal neurologic deficits that for all the world you know looked like MS and we followed them and then they sort of ended up you know the course changed or they sort of declared themselves over time. Um, CNS vasculitis can also look like demyelinating disorders. Sarcoid is always on that list. Living in Alabama, I've been uh, looking for sarcoid for the past 13 years. I have yet to find it, but it's, I know I'll find a case someday, but that's something always to think about. In addition, particularly in children, there are neurodegenerative disorders, and usually the course of disease is a little bit more chronic. There's usually, it's been going on longer. There's not this as waxing and waning a course as you might see, for example, with multiple sclerosis with, you know, a set of discrete relapses. But for example, adrenal leukodystrophy can look like MS sometimes or, or more like ADEM, but that can be ruled out pretty easily with a test for very long chain fatty acids. We had a child that I recently diagnosed with Alexander disease, which is a mutation in the gliofibrillary acidic protein, or GFAP, and that's a child who, she had episodes of kind of dizziness, ataxia, and it's funny, and, you know, MRI looked abnormal, but when I repeated the MRI six months later, it got worse, not better. Well, that's not ADEM. Can ADEM have a recurrent pattern? Are there more than one form of the ADEM? There can be recurrent. And again, typically, there's been debate about when it recurs, at what point do you give up and call it MS? But typically, to call it ADEM, you have to have alteration of mental status. And we've had some kids who have had 
two or even three episodes of ADEM, and every time they had it, had alteration in mental status. And their MRI, often their symptoms were different, and their MRI looked different as well. But if you get an MRI in between the episodes, the MRI completely cleans up, whereas in MS, that's not going to happen. There's also a recurrent ADEM, and I have one child who's had that, where she had symptoms of headache, lethargy, not walking right, her MRI cleaned up. Two years later, she had exactly the same thing again. Her MRI is cleaned up again, and she's now been six years without any more recurrences. And so I think she really had this recurrent form of ADEM and unfortunately has not had any other problems. I think one thing is if you're not, you know, you've got these funny white lesions or these funny white matter lesions and you're not sure what they are, is, um, you know, repeating the MRI can help. So it takes of time, but, you know, seeing how the you know, the child does over time, and seeing what the MRI does. We've got one kid who, for all the world, sounded like she had ADEM, and repeated the MRI, and the kid just still lethargic, still not themselves. They'd actually been put on steroids and would get better, but the steroids got weaned, would get worse. The MRI just showed progressive lesions. Eventually, a brain biopsy was done, and that child had a brain tumor. And so I think the one thing is, if things don't make sense, is to have a low threshold to biopsy. What sort of interval would you repeat the MRI? There's no clear data on what the best way is to do with ADEM. I typically, if it's an episode of ADEM, I usually repeat the MRI six months later. Certainly, if there's any new symptoms in the meantime, I'll repeat it sooner. But usually, it takes it can take up to six months for changes to resolve. And so, if you see abnormalities at three months, you're going to say, "Oh, that's still abnormal." Let me repeat the MRI again in six months. And so, that's why I just go out the six months. If I am concerned about that, this may be MS. Maybe it's a child who had an episode that we call clinically isolated syndrome with no change in mental status, but some focal neurologic deficits such as vision loss in one eye or numbness on one side of the face or weakness one side of the body. And the symptom lasted for more than 24 hours. That's a key part of it. I'll repeat the MRI in three months and possibly sooner, depending on how concerned I am that that child may have MS. So again, to clarify, for ADEM, there has to be complete resolution of findings on the MRI. There should be improvement. Um, some kids are left with some scarring, but most kids will have improvement. And when you've got to rethink your diagnosis is when the MRI doesn't get better or when it gets worse. But then what you do is you follow the child with serial MRIs and see how they do. I'd just like to pause for a moment to welcome those who are just joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jane Ness. We're discussing things that mimic pediatric multiple sclerosis. I was sort of fascinated that there are some extra CNS organ diseases that can develop or be associated with MS. Celiac disease is one that I read about. Certainly that's being diagnosed more and more frequently in children. How often is MS associated with celiac disease and how does it go together? It's something that we think about. There's a couple of kids that they have GI symptoms that I've tested for. And it's interesting because actually I have a friend with MS who asked me this very question that she was having some GI symptoms before her diagnosis. And I've actually subsequently asked my GI colleagues how much MS they see. And most of them say they don't see that much. I think it's out there, but, you know, I, and there's certainly some overlap between, the, you know, these immune-mediated disorders. It, certainly we know, for example, Sjogren's is a great mimicker of MS. And sometimes people can have, you know, other types of autoimmune diseases in addition to MS. Unfortunately, in our kids, we usually see just 
the MS without everything that goes along with it, probably the most common associated thing that I see is actually seizures, which in some ways is, not, you know, is really not all that surprising. But I think these people who have several immune disorders are actually very, very interesting. Of course, you never want to be interesting to a pediatric neurologist. I think can shed light on, you know, what, you know, what's really going on and what's happening in the immune system to make the both the brain and body so susceptible to damage. Another syndrome that we see in pediatrics, and I'm sure adult medicine sees it as well, but Guillain-Barre syndrome and that's a transverse myelitis. Is that ever associated with development of MS? Guillain-Barre is demyelination of the peripheral nerves, and often right as they exit the spinal cord, whereas transverse myelitis, acute transverse myelitis, has to be demyelination involving three contiguous segments of the spinal cord or more. And it can be very difficult, especially in a child who's not cooperative, to sort out, is this child having Guillain-Barre? Or is this child having acute transverse myelitis? And, of course, they always come in on Friday night when you cannot, you know, it's hard to get an MRI. Typically, Guillain-Barre has absent reflexes, but you can with acute transverse myelitis, too. Typically, Guillain-Barre will be more of a stocking glove distribution of sensory changes, but not, you know, not always. And you can have spotty changes with a transverse myelitis. That probably the most helpful thing for me in differentiating clinically between uh, acute transverse myelitis and a Guillain-Barre clinically is whether there's bladder involvement or not. In, in transverse myelitis, there's often bladder difficulty, and we'll actually, you know, check post-void residuals with a bedside ultrasound, whereas a Guillain-Barre, there's usually not bladder difficulty. And then the MRI should show you increased T2 signal and transverse myelitis, but sometimes it doesn't show up right away. It's very tough. The nerve conduction studies are probably the next thing that are the most helpful in, in sorting it out. We talked about ADEM as a demyelinating disorder. Are there other demyelinating syndromes that should be thought of in the differential diagnosis of MS? Well, I think the biggest thing when you suspect demyelination that because there's, you know, focal neurological deficits, I think then your next path, and then, you know, again, it can affect the spinal cord, so that would give you a transverse myelitis picture. Often with MS, it's often a partial transverse myelitis, so they might be just numb or weak on one leg or have a band-like sensation, so it won't be that, you know, big, impressive transverse myelitis that you would see with acute transverse myelitis. Or the optic nerves can be involved, so it's an optic neuritis. So it's localizing where it's in the central nervous system, and then is there alteration of mental status or not? If there's alteration of mental status, then it, I call it an ADEM. Or, and then if there's not, then I call it a clinically isolated syndrome. And there's certainly other diseases that can, as we've discussed, that can mimic these. Yeah, again, I think of Guillain-Barre being common and difficult to sort out, encephalitis difficult to sort out. And then the forms of leukodystrophies can be difficult to sort out. But again, there's usually some more history that will help you as well as the serial MRIs. Any endocrine or nutritional conditions that should be thought of? Certainly we look for vitamin B12 deficiency. I mean, so, you know, it's a B12 myelopathy. We do look for diabetes, you know, hemoglobin A1C in, in certain kids. We check thyroid function. I think the thing that has been most common mimicker of demyelination in our practice has been forms of autoimmune disease such as, such as lupus. But I think you really have got to keep a broad differential. And of course, you always think of, have to think about infectious disease. Lyme disease isn't so common here in the South, but it is certainly, you know, a high consideration, you know, in the Northeast and Midwest. We always think about West Nile, Bartonella, mycoplasma can be a mimicker. So I think, you know, all that you just have to keep your differential broad and wide. If you have the take-home message for the audience regarding mimickers of demyelinating disorders and the level of awareness that a doctor should have regarding presentation of MS in children, 
Could you sum it up for us? I think you have to put the whole package together. You've got to put the MRI together, the clinical symptoms together, and sometimes it's not always clear right up front. So then you follow that child over time, follow their clinical exam, and follow their neuroimaging and get ancillary testing as indicated. And it can take time. And when in doubt, we at the pediatric MS centers across the country are more than happy to help you out. And we have funding available from the National MS Society that can help pay for transportation for children who live a long distance away from these centers. Anything in the genetic spectrum that is useful in terms of diagnosis? There's certainly interest in the HLA subtypes and what it's related to types of MS. We are not using it in our practice yet as something to look at. We're involved in some research studies, but there's nothing at this point that we can test for and say, yes, this is MS or not, or that you're at terribly high risk for it, and so so therefore we should be tracking you more closely. It still comes down to your clinical exam, getting a great history, and following neuroimaging when indicated. I'd like to thank Dr. Jane Ness, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing things that mimic pediatric multiple sclerosis. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com to access our entire program library and to explore our on-demand and podcast features. I wish you good day and good health. Listen all month as ReachMD XM 157 presents a special series focused on children's health. To download podcasts of this series, visit us at ReachMD.com.